God's word. Heavenly Father, it is great to be here. It's great to be here with brothers and sisters, family in Christ, purchased by the blood of your Son. We come to worship you, Lord. We come to exalt the name of your Son. We come to have fellowship in our Savior and come under the teaching and preaching of your word. We pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us, that you would enlighten us, Lord, that we would hear what you would have to say for us this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd hate to ask you to stand back up again, but I just want to read God's word. Please stand. The title of this morning's message is A Work of Spiritual Maturity and Stability. Philippians 4, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Odia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. Throughout the Apostle Paul's epistles to the New Testament churches, we see this common teaching of spiritual maturity and stability. Some examples in the church were hurt feelings, those offended or wronged, sides taken, those unappreciated in the body, sinful behavior, gossip, misuse of Christian liberties, immorality, arguments, misunderstanding of biblical truths, etc. These truths of spiritual maturity and stability among the brethren were very important to the Apostle Paul and just as important for us to look at today. Notice how the Apostle Paul writes to these dear friends at Philippi. He writes, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Notice how Paul begins this verse by highlighting his personal affections for these believers. He says they're his brethren. That means they're like his brothers and sisters. He says he loves them. Notice how he uses this word beloved twice in this one verse. He says, I long to see you as a longing in his heart to be with them. And he adds, you are my joy and crown. They were a great cause of joy for Paul and brought him great honor as a body of believers. Notice in chapter 4, verse 1, this transition word, therefore. The Greek word always means to look back at what's gone before it. And in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, 
Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. What Paul is saying to them is, in light of the fact that your citizenship is not here, but it's in heaven, and in light of the fact you are eagerly waiting for Jesus' return, and when he returns, he's going to make you just like him, in terms of a resurrected body just like his. He says, in light of all of that, I want you to stand firm. It's an interesting word, stand firm. This Greek word, stako, is a military word, which means to stand one's post or to stand one's ground in the face of battle. Paul uses it often throughout his epistles. However, I believe we can get a good understanding of this word in Romans 14, verse 4. Paul writes, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. To stand firm or fall are the two alternatives in the Christian life. This word to stand firm means to be stable, to be steadfast, and not to be moved by the way we live or what we believe. This word was often used in secular Greek to describe a soldier who stands his post regardless of the cost to him. It describes spiritual stability. That's the kind of spiritual stability every Christian needs in their walk with Jesus Christ. This ability to stand firm, to stay at your post, and be unmoved by the circumstances around us. And on the other hand, it's a lack of spiritual stability that characterizes spiritual immaturity. Look how Paul describes it in Ephesians 4, verse 14. Ephesians 4, verse 14. There we read, We are no longer to be like children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, you see, immaturity is characterized by instability. He goes on in verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. As we grow up and mature in our Christian life, Paul's desire is for each one of us to become more spiritually stable and mature in our faith. And in Philippians 4, verse 1, Paul tells us how. It's contained in this one little Greek word, stand firm. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. Or in other words, stand firm in this way. And what follows verse 1 are a series of imperative commands in verses 2 through 9 that outline a path of spiritual stability. Do you want to be more spiritually stable? 
Do you want to be more solid and unmovable in your walk with Christ? Do you want to stand firm in the circumstances that may come in our lives? Then you're going to know how in verses 2 through 9. Paul says, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. Now, I would like to just take a minute to talk about this word, stand firm. It's not an offensive posture, but it's a defensive posture. You see, we're not out there conquering ground. Jesus has already won the battle for us on the cross. He's already won the victory over sin and death and Satan himself. As we looked and read uh, from uh, the scripture reading this morning from my brother David, Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, we looked at the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, should feed of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. We heard the word stand firm used twice in that passage. This is what spiritual maturity and stability look like in the Christian life. No matter what the trials, the temptations, the sorrows, the disappointments that we have in life, we are to stand firm in the Lord. God has given us this armor to stand firm at our posts, to stand firm with our feet on the ground, remembering who we are in Jesus Christ with all the promises and all the hope we have in the gospel with all the peace we have in the truth of God's word. In Philippians 4 and the verses that follow, Paul gives us six specific points of spiritual maturity and stability. We are going to just get to two of them this morning. Point number one, resolve to live in harmony with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Resolve to live in harmony with other brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 2, Paul writes, I urge Odia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He says, if you're going to be spiritually stable, then it starts by having a right relationship with the Christians around you. Why is that? Because in this spiritual battle, as in a physical battle, we need our fellow soldiers. We need our fellow Christians to be around us. We need to depend on one another for strength and encouragement, counsel and discernment, accountability and prayer, and even times for help. If you're going to be spiritually stable, then you need to be in right relationship with Jesus Christ and right relationship with other Christians. Now, there is so much confusion today on what true unity looks like. So before we look at what it means, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Paul is not saying that you and I should compromise on fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith in order to have unity with others. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, what does Paul say about those who distort or twist the gospel? He says, let them be accursed. Let them be damned. 
Paul is not encouraging any Christian to compromise on the fundamentals of the faith, nor is he encouraging us to overlook a gross pattern of unrepentant sin in the lives of other believers. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the swindlers or idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. He says, listen, I didn't mean people like that in the world who are unbelievers. Because if you didn't associate with them who practice these things naturally, you would have no witness in the world. He goes on in verse 11. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. Don't associate with a so-called brother if he is an immoral person, covetous, idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That specifically speaks to fellowship. Paul says, listen, if you know absolutely and you have witnessed personally someone who claims to be a Christian, who is living a clear pattern of habitual sin in their lives, then you should not even have fellowship with such a person. However, we are called as followers of Jesus Christ to come alongside a brother and sister who is struggling with a sin and to pray with them and point them to the cross, and point them to the gospel, and to restore them back to the body and back to fellowship in the body of Christ. He goes on to say in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God will judge. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So Paul is not advocating in Philippians 4, verse 1 through 3, that we should overlook serious doctrinal error or a clear habitual pattern of unrepentant sin in a believer's life. So what does Paul mean? Well, let's look at the context and and the circumstances here in Philippians 4. Notice that these two women aren't just claiming to be believers, nor were they anything like these people stated by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look how this passage describes them. They are obviously members of this church at Philippi. That's why they're in this letter. They were genuine believers. As we read at the end of verse 3, he says their names are in the book of life. These were true believers. Not only that, these women were active in ministry. He says in verse 3, they have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, meaning they have previously shown the ability to work alongside others. So these these women were not known for being antagonistic or hard to get along with. They labored together with Paul and other believers, and now these two women disagree over some issue that doesn't, that doesn't uh, involve a fundamental doctrine or a pattern of unrepentant sin in their lives, or Paul would have addressed it. 
This was a disagreement between two women over something that doesn't rise to that level. Now listen, church. This will happen in every church. Men and women will disagree. And it will happen. It happened between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Turn back to Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Acts 15, verse 36. God's word says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Obviously, if a disagreement arose between one of the apostles of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, and his traveling missionary uh, companion, Barnabas, known as Son of Encouragement, then it's important for us to realize that disagreements will happen. But what's important is how we choose to respond to those disagreements. If you choose to get others in the church to side with you against the other person, then you are in real danger of becoming what the Bible calls divisive. A divisive person is simply one who uses an issue of disagreement and tries to drive a wedge between others in the body of Christ. God hates that kind of division in those who cause them. In fact, Proverbs 6 verse 16 says, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And in verse 19 concludes, And the one who spreads strife among brothers. What's interesting to me is that even in the church of Corinth, with all the immorality, the worldliness, the divisions, the immaturity, problems with the Lord's table, problems with spiritual gifts, marriages, problems with Christian liberties, and all of this, the apostle goes directly to the most important problem that is a cure for the rest. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. He just finishes his greeting in verses 1 through 9, and here he goes directly into the heart of the problem. Verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. He goes on to describe these differences in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3. He said, Since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? In other words, you're living as though you've not been born again, that you've not been regenerated, that the Spirit of God doesn't live in you. This, is, this was a constant and overarching concern for the Apostle Paul when neither fundamental doctrines or clear biblical sin is involved. 
How do you resolve a situation between you and another believer, or in our text, between these two women? Well, there is some instruction for us back in Philippians 4. Let us look at them together. Here's how you deal with that kind of a problem. Here is how you resolve those kind of disagreements. First of all, let us understand how important resolution and reconciliation are. Look at verse 2 in Philippians 4. The apostle says, I urge you. Literally, the Greek word is to beg or to plead. He says, I plead with you. I beg you. He repeats the word twice. Notice he says the word urge before each of their names. As if Paul turns to one of the ladies in the church and says, I plead with you. I beg of you. And then he turns to the other and says the same thing. And he mentions them by name. That's unparalleled in the writings of Paul. For those who are faithful to the truth to bring them up publicly. You see, we don't tend to think of disagreements as a major issue, but they were for Paul. Because he knew they could eventually divide the church. Understand how important resolution is. Listen, if you get in a disagreement with another brother and sister in Christ, don't let it lie. Resolve it. These two women, as well as all in the body of Christ, are to work at personal resolution. Look at what he says back in chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation in love, if there is any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete in being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the same Spirit, intended in one purpose. He says, listen, let me appeal to you on the basis of our common spiritual resources we enjoy. And let me appeal to you on the basis of the one purpose we have in life, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel demands reconciliation. We of all people should know this. We were born in enmity with God. We were born separated from God because of our sins. And in God's great love and his mercy, he sent his only son. And he came to this earth and he lived a perfect life for you and me. He suffered and he bled and he died. And he took our sins and he forgave us. And in one hand, he grabbed sinful man. And in one hand, he grabbed a holy God. And he reconciled us together. How can we? How can we not be reconciled to another believer after what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? In other words, whatever you are disagreeing over is not that important. In light of the grace and the mercy that has been shown to you and me, undeserved, unmerited in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he goes on in Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. 
God needed to teach me this sermon, and I'm sharing it with you. Do you know how many disagreements would be resolved if we took that approach? But what happens even if this doesn't work? And these two ladies still can't resolve the issue at hand. Well, there's a second step Paul mentions in chapter 4, verse 3. He says, get a third party involved and don't leave the disagreement unresolved. Look what he says in this text. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This word companion he uses in the Greek pictures two oxen in a yoke, and they're pulling the same load in the same direction. This companion was most likely a church elder or a, um, a mature saint in the body of Christ. What Paul is strongly putting forth here is we must come alongside and help these women because unresolved disagreements will eventually produce settled conflict. Let me say that again. Unresolved disagreements will eventually produce settled conflict. So what if they try all of this and the disagreement can't be resolved? And both women are not responding to each other's concerns or instruction or wisdom from the mature brother and sister in Christ, as well as the love and prayers from the other believers within the church. That's why the church must be involved. They are to graciously part ways, but without sowing discord. Paul and Barnabas are a great example for us as we looked earlier at Acts 15, and saw them part ways, and yet there is every indication that they remained close friends. The key is don't become a flashpoint of division within the body of Christ. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook a transgression. Ephesians 4.32 says, tell us, tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Listen to this. Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. This first point of spiritual maturity and stability is resolved to live in harmony with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Point number two. Determined to respond to life circumstances with joy. Determined to respond to life circumstances with joy. Notice Ephesians 4.4. 4. I'm sorry, Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You see, for Paul, joy is an indispensable element in the Christian life. And this brief letter sets forth this theme of joy like no other. We see it in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Chapter 2, 17 and 18. Chapter 3, verse 1. And now he returns to it again in chapter 4, verse 4. With an unqualified command. Rejoice always. Now, can we be honest? If anybody else had written this letter and said, 
All right, here it is. I want you to rejoice always. What would our first response be? Yeah, right. Okay, there's a guy that's in touch with the real world. There's a guy that knows the circumstances and the situations in my life. But the Ephesians knew better with the Apostle Paul. They couldn't respond to Paul like that, and neither can we. Paul had an incredible credibility to the Philippians. You see it in Acts 16. We don't need to turn there. But you remember the story when the church was founded. A story, I'm sure, was spread through the members of the Philippians church. Paul sought Lydia, the first European convert, to come to faith in Christ. Then he was followed by a slave girl, possessed with the spirit of divination. She kept following them day after day, saying, these men are servants of the Most High God. Until Paul turns and says to the demon spirit in her, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he casts the demon out of her, and she becomes gloriously saved and a member of the church. However, her owners weren't happy about this, because all the money they made from her fortune-telling, and they had Paul and Silas arrested. They accused them of sedition and terrible things. And those who led the city agreed, and had Paul and Silas stripped, beaten with rods, and the jailer was told to lock them up and put their feet in stocks so they couldn't move. This is how they responded to this. God, I don't deserve this. I'm here serving you. How, how could you let this happen to, to us? No, that's not the story, and that's not how it goes. They were singing at midnight and praising God. They had great joy in the midst of terrible circumstances. Now Paul, as he writes this letter to the Philippians, he's in a Roman prison. And he has been there for almost two years. And for those two years, a death threat has hung over his head with possible execution. So Paul is not writing these letters from Paradise Island or some vacation destination. He's in a terrible situation. And anyone who knew the apostle then or has read his letters to the churches today knows this kind of suffering was the story of his missionary journeys. And in 2 Corinthians 11.23, Paul says, I've been in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times received from the Jews nine lashes, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I spent in the deep. Verse 26. I've been on frequent journeys. Dangers from rivers. Dangers from robbers. Dangers from countrymen. Dangers from Gentiles. Dangers in the city. Dangers in the wilderness. Dangers at sea. Dangers from false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship for many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, without food, in cold and exposure. Listen, I'm not qualified to tell anybody here today to rejoice in everything. But Paul is. 
Not a person sitting under the sound of my voice has come close to enduring what Paul endured for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Philippians knew that. He says to them, and he says to us who have God's word, rejoice always. Notice he doesn't say just hang in there and maybe things will get better. No, he says, I want you to be filled with joy. Joy is what we have inherited as Christians, right? Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of joy. Nehemiah 8, verse 10 says, The joy of the Lord is our strength. What is this joy? Some confuse joy with happiness. You see, happiness is always tied with our circumstances. You're happy when your circumstances in life are happy. But joy is never tied with circumstances, as we see here in Philippians 4. He says, rejoice always. Nobody has good circumstances always. You see that in other texts of Scripture, where he puts this word joy connected with affliction, with pressure, with trouble. Joy is completely unrelated to our circumstances. Notice he commands us to rejoice always. That means in every circumstance, with no exception, and as long as we live, to rejoice. You say, that sounds good, Steve, but I don't know how that can happen in my life. Galatians 5.22 says, this kind of joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But here in Philippians 4, we see a key to how we can maintain this kind of disposition, this kind of state of mind. Paul says in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. There's the key. You see, the state of mind can only flow from a right theology. This joy flows from a settled conviction that God is absolutely sovereign over our lives and in all our circumstances. If we truly believe in God's promises that they never change and that he uses all things good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, if we truly believe that God's character never changes and in the midst of our troubles, And in the midst of our sufferings, that God is faithful and his mercies are new every morning. God's character never changes. Neither does his relationship with us. Listen, if you and I really believe these truths with all the promises in Scripture to us, then we can see through the troubles, through the heartaches, through the sufferings, knowing that we can fight for joy through them for our good and for God's glory. I want you to look at a very precious, very rich passage of Scripture that really just takes this whole sermon and boils it together. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8. Listen to these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. All you need to do is spend a little time in fellowship with other believers in Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's not even with other believers. Sometimes it's just with a coworker or somebody that you just meet somewhere. And you realize that people go through really tough things. Loss of loved ones, children, loss of jobs, disabilities. I mean, it can just go on and on and on with the things that people have to go through. Each when you think you got it tough, you'll meet somebody that has it ten times worse. I, I don't know what to tell people at times. All I can do is point you to God's word and point you to the cross of Jesus Christ and point you to the eternal hope we have as believers that one day we will be united with Christ and we will rejoice with him and enjoy him forever. That's the best we can do. And thank God we have the hope of Jesus Christ. I would hate to go through these things in life without that hope. We are very rich in Christ. I love Psalm 16, verse 11. You will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Let us look for fullness. Let us not look for fullness of joy here on this earth. We'll never find it here. Yes, we can receive a small measure of it here as we love and we follow Christ. But in God's eternal purpose, you will experience his perfect, unending, unconditional, complete joy in his presence. Let us continue to remind ourselves regularly in prayer who God is, that he will never leave us or forsake us, let us remind ourselves that he is always in control of all our circumstances. Let us remind ourselves that he is our father and he loves us and he holds us in his mighty right hand. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above not on things of this earth. How can we stand firm in the Lord and become more spiritually mature and, and stable? Let us start by following these first two step points. 
that the Apostle Paul lays down for us in Philippians 4. Resolve to live in harmony with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Second, determine to respond to life's circumstances with joy. May God do a work of spiritual maturity and stability in the lives of his people, for his church, for the sake of his gospel and the glory of his name.